The following lecture was produced by the Rhode Island Student Assistance Services with funding from the Rhode Island Department of Health. Welcome to the Rhode Island Youth Mental Health Webinar Series. This week's topic, the mental health needs of LGBTQIA youth. What educators and others need to know. Remember, your feedback is important to us. Please fill out the survey in the description below for your chance to win a $100 gift card. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining this important webinar, The Mental Health Needs of LGBTQIA Plus Youth, What Educators and Others Need to Know. I'm Sarah Dinklage, the Executive Director of Rhode Island Student Assistance Services. We at RISAS, in partnership with the Rhode Island Department of Health, are proud to bring you this series of webinars focusing on youth, mental health, and the ways educators and parents can foster resilience in their children and students. Located below this video, you will see a description box with links to our website and Facebook page, where we will let you know when more content like this will be released. In addition to these items, we've created a post survey to get your input on the content being provided. After completing the survey, you also have the ability to receive contact hours for your time spent watching this presentation. There will be a reminder towards the end of our video to take the survey for a chance to win a $100 gift card. While we have made great strides in reducing stigma for LGBTQIA folks, we still have a long way to go. Our presenter, Dr. Kiroglian, is an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and co-director of the Harvard Medical School Sexual and Gender Minority Health Equity Initiative. He directs the National LGBTQIA Plus Health Education Center at the Fenway Institute, an organization dedicated to improving care for LGBTQIA plus people across the U.S. Dr. Kiroglian also established the Massachusetts General Hospital Psychiatry Gender Identity Program. Thank you again for your interest in this topic, and I'm now pleased to turn it over to Dr. Kiroglian. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. Hi, everybody. Very happy to be with you all this morning and looking forward to discussing the needs of LGBTQI plus youth with you all today. We'll discuss some important concepts related to sexual orientation and gender identity, experiences of sexual and gender minority youth, the relationship between stigma and inequities experienced by LGBTQI plus youth, and describe best practices for youth related to communication and creating inclusive and affirming environments within school systems and for students in general. There are a lot of terms that get used when we focus on serving LGBTQI plus communities and youth that can be initially overwhelming and confusing. So let's talk through these together to make sure we're all on the same page. The first big point to make is that sexual orientation and gender identity are not the same thing. These are two different concepts, two different experiences. Everybody has both a sexual orientation and a gender identity. Each of us on today's webinar has one of each. And the concepts and terms we used 20 years ago are different than the concepts and terms we used 10 years ago, five years ago, even a year or two ago. I'm hearing new terms from my LGBTQI plus younger patients in the last four to six months that I hadn't heard even a year or two ago. So part of this is a very rapidly moving linguistic revolution. And that's both exciting and can be daunting to try to keep up with. How a given person identifies in their lifespan will also change for many folks. So 
The young person may initially identify as a boy and later identify as a girl, may initially identify as straight and later identify as gay, lesbian, or queer, for example. So part of this is to not assume that if we've had this conversation with a young person or anybody, an adult as well, that it's a one and done situation where that's their identity and it's static and not going to change potentially over time. In healthcare, we ask about sexual orientation and gender identity, and we recommend for this to be the case at all healthcare systems we work with, that they ask patients about sexual orientation and gender identity every year, if not every six months, because it's a dynamically evolving demographic variable. One important concept to outline here is that of sex assigned at birth. When babies are born in most countries and cultures around the world, they're typically assigned one of two sexes based on physical characteristics, female or male. In some cases, intersex, if they have characteristics of sex development that don't fit traditional societal expectations for female or male bodies. We now know that these babies grow up, become children, adolescents, and adults who may have a gender identity, a core sense of their gender that doesn't align with society's expectations based on the sex they were assigned when they were born. What is gender identity? It's a person's inner sense of being a girl, woman, boy, man, something else with regard to gender beyond girl or boy or woman, man, or having no gender at all. And we increasingly that many people have a gender identity that doesn't fit one of the two traditional societal options of either being a girl or being a boy either being a woman or being a man. We appreciate that many people have what we refer to as a non-binary gender identity. Gender identity is a very core fundamental part of whom we each are. Gender expression is how a person presents or communicates that gender to other people, to the outside world. And that can be through mannerisms, the way someone walks, their voice, their hairstyle, the way they dress. And it's important to note that gender expression is also quite complex. It's not necessarily the case that someone assigned male sex at birth would want to or ought to express their gender in a traditionally masculine way, whatever that means. And it's not necessarily the case that people assigned female sex at birth would want to or ought to express their gender in a traditionally feminine way, whatever that means. Gender expression is also contextual. Someone may have a more feminine gender expression at school and a more masculine gender expression at home. It's cultural. What's considered feminine or masculine in one culture may not be considered the same in another. And each of us, at the end of the day, has aspects of our gender expression that some in society may consider more traditionally feminine and other aspects of our gender expression that folks may consider more masculine. So we each have both of these traditional notions of gender expression within us. It may seem like transgender and gender diverse people would be a small fringe subpopulation, say within the trans community. It turns out that's not at all the case. In a community sample of 452 transgender folks in Massachusetts, we found that 41% identified as having a non-binary gender identity. And large national studies have shown that the younger you go within the U.S. population, the more and more likely people are to identify as having a non-binary gender identity. Among youth, it's significantly more common and increasing, as is identification generally as being LGBTQI+. We have many best practice briefs or guidelines on our website that you can download for free as PDFs to train yourself or your colleagues. All these are available at lgbtqiahealtheducation.org, which this is one of the best practice briefs on our website on providing affirmative care for patients with non-binary gender identities. I've used this term transgender a few times, and it refers broadly speaking to folks whose gender identity doesn't align with society's expectations based on the sex they were assigned when they were born. If someone is assigned male sex at birth and identifies as a girl or a woman, they may refer themselves as a transgender girl or woman, a trans girl or woman, simply as a girl or woman. Similarly, if someone's assigned female sex at birth and identifies as a boy or man, they may refer themselves as a transgender boy or man, a trans boy or man, 
or simply as a boy or man. Non-binary people have a variety of ways they may identify. Many people identify as non-binary. Many will identify as genderqueer. We also hear the term gender fluid quite a bit, which implies a gender identity that's more dynamic and potentially going to evolve over time. Increasingly, we also use the terms transmasculine and transfeminine. These are terms that are more inclusive of people with non-binary gender identities. A transmasculine person is someone assigned female sex at birth who identifies more with masculinity than with femininity. They may identify in a traditional binary way as a man, but they may also not. Sexual orientation is how a person identifies their physical, emotional, and romantic attachments to other people. And this we find helpful to think about in three components. The first component of sexual orientation is desire. This is whom someone is attracted to and whether they're attracted to other people. When I was in medical school, I was trained to ask, are you attracted to women, men, or both? And we've moved beyond that. Now we ask initially, do you have attractions to other people to make room for asexual and aromantic people? If the person says yes, then we might ask, who are you attracted to generally, or what are the genders of the people you're attracted to? We'll come back a little later today to how to have conversations with youth about sexual orientation. The second component of sexual orientation is behavior, and this refers to whom someone is engaging in intimate or sexual activity with and what type of intimate or sexual activity it is. Important to note that risk of sexually transmitted infections isn't related to identity, it's related to behavior. So it's not the fact that a teenager identifies as gay that puts them at risk for HIV. It's what type of sexual activity they're engaging in and what types of body parts are involved specifically in that sexual activity. So moving away from thinking about risk with regard to identity and thinking about it with regard to body parts and behavior. The third component of sexual orientation is identity. And this refers to the range of labels and communities that exist in society that a person may or may not affiliate with regarding their sexual orientation. Some of the more common ones historically include straight, gay, lesbian, bisexual, queer, asexual, pansexual. There are several others. And you'll, you can find a glossary of terms on our website, again, lgbtqiahealtheducation.org with definitions for more terms related to gender identity and sexual orientation. What does the Q stand for? Q stands for someone, it can stand for someone who's questioning their sexual orientation or gender identity. It can also stand for queer, which used to mean strange, bizarre, or odd uh, in English a uh, hundred years ago. Mid 20th century, it became a derogatory term, a put down or slur for uh, sexual minority people, gay and lesbian people. And a couple of decades ago, the term was reclaimed by the community that said, will you call us queer to hurt us? So now we're gonna call ourselves queer and we're gonna do it with pride so that you can't hurt us anymore by calling us queer. Lo and behold, there are queer studies departments now in colleges around the country and many young people and many students will identify as queer. Important to note, it's also a term used by many gender diverse people and that some people will not uh, accept this label because they still experience it as triggering and it experience it as a slur or a derogatory term. So we have to ask people how they identify. That's an important principle. And always just reflect back exactly the language that they identify with. Now to understand mental health disparities and other inequities experienced by trans and gender diverse people and LGBTQI plus people in general, we increasingly use what's referred to as a minority stress framework. And within this framework, the idea is that LGBTQI plus youth developmentally from early childhood through adolescence into adulthood experience everyday discrimination, victimization, microaggressions, frank violence at a much higher prevalence than the general population. The FBI has reported in recent years that one of the populations with the highest incidence of hate crimes in the U.S. are African-American transgender women and trans feminine youth. So that's the horrific reality many people are living with. We think of all this as external stigma-related stress. 
All that stigma-related stress for many young people can lead to disruptions in certain general psychological processes like coping skills, emotional regulation, interpersonal relationships, having certain beliefs or cognitive structures, as we say, that aren't very adaptive, like believing it's never going to get better, nobody can be trusted, no one will ever love me. And there was literally a public health campaign a decade ago called It Gets Better to try to prevent LGBTQIA plus youth from attempting suicide in the U.S., so that sort of cognitive distortion is very common, unfortunately, with minority stress experiences. All the external stigma-related stress can lead to internal stigma-related stress, internalized homophobia, internalized transphobia, leaving all the negative things that society has to say about your gender identity or sexual orientation, expecting rejection because you're so accustomed to it, and identity concealment to prevent mistreatment or abuse. All this external and internal stigma-related stress we think is related to what we see in the research increasingly, which is a much higher prevalence of various behavioral health problems among LGBTQI plus youth, like the much higher prevalence of depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance use disorders in many cases as a way to cope with all this stress, decreased self-care, decreased engagement in mental health services and other support services, and down the road, unfortunately, a much higher prevalence of various physical health problems as well. So this is how we understand a lot of the inequities that LGBTQI plus youth experience, and we'll talk about minority stress theory more today. We think about the stigma experienced by LGBTQI plus youth in three components. There's interpersonal stigma perpetrated between individuals. This can be between students within school. It can be from teacher, an educator, a staff member at the school toward a student as well, starts young on the playground and continues through adolescence and into adulthood, unfortunately, for many people. Second component is structural stigma. This refers to institutional or governmental policies that may intentionally or unintentionally restrict the opportunities and freedoms of certain groups of people. One example that's been a big topic in the news the last four or five years has been access to all gender restrooms within schools, for example. And uh, we have at our health center, Fenway in Boston or Massachusetts General Hospital, we've shifted all single occupancy restrooms over to all gender restrooms so that people can choose the restroom that best suits their gender identity. Another very active issue uh, politically in the U.S. this year is gendered sports teams and trans and gender diverse youth in school being able to play on a sports team that aligns with their gender identity. And this is something we're seeing a lot of uh, legislative action around right now as well. So these are forms of structural stigma that would prevent LGBTQI plus youth from accessing certain opportunities and freedoms like other youth and students do. Intrapersonal stigma refers to the kind of internalized homophobia and internalized transphobia I was mentioning earlier. This can be hard to shake and lead to a lot of social isolation and distress and shame even after a young person is affirmed in their gender identity or comes out in terms of their sexual orientation. There are a lot of data indicating that LGBTQI plus youth experience disproportionate discrimination and victimization. The U.S. Trans Survey of 28,000 people nationally from every U.S. state, including many people from Rhode Island, found that 10% of trans and gender diverse respondents reported a family member was violent towards them because of their gender identity. 8% were kicked out of the home because of their gender identity. Many reported experiencing serious mistreatment in school, including 54% reporting being verbally harassed, 24% reporting being physically attacked, and 13% reported being sexually assaulted in school, all related to their gender identity. And 17% experienced such severe mistreatment in this regard that they had to leave school before graduating. Children of sexual minority households are especially vulnerable to poverty. African-American children in gay male households have the highest poverty rate of any kids in any household type in the U.S., and the rate for children living with lesbian couples is extremely high as well. 
The U.S. Trans Survey also found that trans and gender diverse folks were much more likely to live in poverty compared to the general population, to experience unemployment, to not own their home, and to experience homelessness compared to the general population. Both past year and lifetime homelessness were much more common. And all of this societal stigma and discrimination, what we call social determinants of health, has a real impact on health for LGBTQI plus people. Internalized homophobia and experiencing discrimination and expecting rejection are associated with increased HIV risk behaviors among LGBTQI plus youth. And enacted and anticipated stigma lead to an increase in delaying urgent and preventative health care among transmasculine people in the study of over 2,500 transmasculine folks that was done at the Fenner Institute. So all this directly impacts people's health. We look at specific disparities related to health among LGBTQI plus youth. They're much more likely to attempt suicide, much more likely to experience homelessness. Up to 40% of youth experiencing homelessness in the U.S. are LGBTQI+, and much more likely to experience HIV and other sexually transmitted infections, particularly among Black and Latinx uh, gained by sexual young men and transgender women. A word about substance use among transgender and gender diverse youth. In a national study, 35% of trans youth reported using substances to cope with school-related verbal harassment, physical assault, sexual assault, or expulsion related to their gender identity or expression. Many trans folks also report using substances to cope with the stress of not being able to access standard of care, particularly gender-affirming medical and surgical and mental health care. We've done work with regard to body image dissatisfaction and eating disorders among LGBTQI plus folks as well. Here's what we published in one report. Trans and gender diverse people have greater body dissatisfaction than non-transgender or cisgender youth do. Transmasculine people who do not have eating disorders still have comparable body dissatisfaction scores to cisgender youth who do have eating disorders. A drive for thinness among transfeminine people and transmasculine people uh, exists in both cases and may have different mechanisms among transfeminine people who have undergone an endogenous puberty and may have a bigger frame. The drive for thinness may be to just be physically smaller and fit Western white notions of a feminine physique. Among transmasculine people, the drive for thinness may be to not have curves that are traditionally associated with a more uh, feminine physique as well. And transmasculine and transfeminine youth report greater body dissatisfaction, not just for gender identifying body parts, but also body shape and weight in general. The U.S. Trans Survey that I mentioned earlier found that trans and gender diverse youth have much higher general psychological distress than the general population, and 40% lifetime suicide attempt prevalence. That's much higher than the prevalence of attempted suicides in any other studied population. And that risk of attempting suicide drops significantly when trans youth are able to access gender-affirming medical care. So it's important to think about gender-affirming medical care as life-saving treatment for trans and gender-diverse youth. It's also the case that youth who have strongly supportive families are much less likely to attempt suicide. So it's important to do a lot of family systems work and to prioritize that as a school system and as educators with our youth uh, to make sure that we're helping their families come along to be affirming of their children. It's also very difficult in many states. Rhode Island is one of the better ones, but can still be challenging to secure insurance coverage for gender-affirming hormone therapy and surgery. Suicide risk among sexual minority folks, so presumed in many cases cisgender sexual minority folks, is more than twice as high as it is for the general population. And among trans and gender diverse folks, it's twice as high even as it is for presumed cisgender sexual minority people. 
The U.S. trans survey found that many trans folks will report negative experiences with healthcare providers, like being verbally harassed or refused treatment. Many reported not seeking needed healthcare in the past year due to fear of gender-related mistreatment. And many didn't go to a healthcare provider when they needed to because they couldn't afford it. If we break down the suicide risk data nationally, in the previous year, 48% of national respondents to the trans survey said they seriously thought about suicide, 24% made a plan to kill themselves in the past year, and 7% attempted suicide in the past year. If we look at those who did attempt suicide in their lifetime, 34% had their first attempt by age 13, and 92% had their first attempt by age 25. So it's critical to understand the role that educators play and staff within school systems play to save the lives of these youth and radically uh, improve the life trajectory for these youth who are at such high risk at that age. This is a study we published last year in the journal JAMA Psychiatry using this national survey data, looking at the relationship between gender identity conversion efforts and suicide attempts. Conversion efforts are efforts to change someone's gender identity from transgender or gender diverse to cisgender, so to make them not transgender, basically. And this is referred in common parlance as conversion therapy. We don't call it conversion therapy because that implies it's a legitimate therapeutic practice, and in fact, it's quite harmful, as we'll see here. 14% of people in the U.S. reported being exposed to gender identity conversion efforts in their lifetime. Lifetime exposure was associated with more than twice the odds of attempting suicide compared to people who were not exposed to conversion efforts, and exposure to gender identity conversion efforts before age 10 was associated with more than four times the odds of attempting suicide. So this practice, as it happens, is quite dangerous. And interestingly, there was no difference in outcomes between conversion efforts administered by a religious advisor versus a secular type professional. There was any effort to change the person's gender identity from transgender or gender diverse to cisgender that increased the risk of attempting suicide, particularly for people who were exposed to these efforts before age 10. This study we published was then cited by the American Medical Association over a year ago when they passed a resolution in support of a federal ban on conversion efforts and was cited by the UN General Assembly in June of 2020 when they passed a resolution in support of an international ban on conversion efforts. Most states in the US still don't have a ban on uh, conversion efforts. So this is a big kind of legislative issue as well. A study we published last year in the journal Pediatrics was looking at pubertal suppression and risk of suicidal ideation. Pubertal suppression is the use of puberty blocking medication in early puberty, in tenor stage two of puberty, to press pause on puberty so that youth can kind of explore and clarify their gender identity. And as needed, you can then induce puberty with gender affirming hormone therapy so that the young person undergoes a puberty that does align with their gender identity. It is important for young people to go through puberty in a timely way. Otherwise, they don't psychosocially develop in school at the same time as their peers who are going through puberty. They also, it's also not good for bone health to not go through some kind of puberty. So young people need to go through puberty in a timely way. It's just that we want to make sure it's one that aligns with their gender identity. So these medications are critical to help with that. And we found that only two and a half percent of respondents who desired pubertal suppression had ever received this medication. And looking at recipients of pubertal suppression, compared to people who desired it when they were young and didn't receive it, recipients of pubertal suppression had lower odds of lifetime suicidal ideation than youth who did not have access to pubertal suppression. So these are really beneficial medications that many of your students increasingly are probably going to be pursuing, and there's more and more access to this. There's a great program actually at Brown, close colleagues of ours, Michelle Forcier uh, and her, her group that some of you may know and may have students who see for care. She's a fantastic close colleague, longtime colleague of ours and provider of gender affirming uh, care. For, for youth in the uh, Providence area. This is a study that's coming out next month in April in uh, JAMA Surgery, which is a 
that's sort of the top uh, surgery journal. And we showed here that access to gender-affirming surgery is associated with improved mental health as well. And this includes surgery for, for minors, which is increasingly being performed. You perform different surgeries depending developmentally on what uh, stage someone is at. You, there, there's no medical or surgical intervention for young children before puberty. Up to puberty, it's really psychosocial affirmation. So you follow the child's lead. If they go by a different name or pronouns or wear certain clothing, it's really about affirming the child psychosocially in that way. And the medical and surgical care is something that you start considering, you know, from puberty onward. So this showed that compared to people who desired gender-affirming surgery and didn't access it, people who were able to access gender-affirming surgery had improved psychological distress, improved odds of smoking, and improved odds of suicidal ideation. And we also found people who had all the gender-affirming surgeries that they wanted versus just some had lower lifetime risk of attempting suicide as well. And this shows improvement in all these mental health outcomes for people who access surgery versus those who desired it and didn't access it. Now, how do we overcome all these barriers? It's important as folks working with LGBTQI plus youth to know that these youth have experienced a lot of stigma and discrimination already in various settings. So don't be surprised if you say something even well-intentioned and student becomes upset don't personalize the reaction. It's not necessarily about you. It's always good to apologize when someone becomes upset and say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be disrespectful and correct yourself. That can be a way to diffuse a difficult situation and reestablish a constructive dialogue. I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to be disrespectful and correct yourself. Pronouns. Pronouns are a critical part of providing an affirming and inclusive school environment for transgender and gender diverse youth. People have a range of pronouns. Some people's pronouns are he, him, his, or she, her, hers, which may be pronouns we're more traditionally familiar with in the singular. Many people's pronouns, many young people's pronouns now who are non-binary are uh, they, them, theirs in the singular. So you'd say, for example, in a healthcare setting, they are in the waiting room, the doctor's ready to see them, that chart is theirs in the singular. It takes practice. You may make mistakes initially when you start doing this. Just apologize yourself. Uh, apologize if you make a mistake and correct yourself. A lot of people get tripped up on the grammar because they're not used to using they, them, theirs in the singular. I know we have an audience of educators here who are probably very uh, particular about grammar, and this may seem like an adjustment, which is understandable. Language has evolved throughout history. Shakespeare used they, them, theirs in the singular. And every word I've used in English already so far at some point wasn't yet a word in English or wasn't used in the way that I'm using it. So part of this is a very kind of fascinating, rapidly moving linguistic revolution. And this, they, them, theirs is now officially in the dictionary in the singular as a pronoun as a result of our making room for non-binary people who've always existed in society. We just made them invisible. In fact, in 2019, they, them, theirs was the Merriam-Webster word of the year in the singular. So this is really where language is evolving and it behooves us as clinicians, as educators to really stay on top of that. There are also pronouns in the singular that have been developed anew for non-binary communities like Z here, here's. So you'd say, for example, Z is in the waiting room, the doctor is ready to see here, that chart is here's. And that's of course a healthcare example, but the principles are the same. It's not about knowing every possible set of pronouns your students are gonna have a priori. It's about having a process grounded in cultural humility where you ask them, Make sure that you're pronouncing it correctly. Let them know that you're going to let other staff know within the school and empower them to be able to uh, let you know or other staff know if mistakes are made. We do a lot of work around how to have conversations about gender identity or sexual orientation with people of all ages. With regard to discussing gender identity with children and adolescents, for children 13 to 12 years old, the kind of language we recommend is to say something along the lines of some kids feel like a girl on the inside, some kids feel like a boy on the inside, some kids feel like neither, both, or someone else. What about you? How do you feel on the inside? There's no right or wrong answer. For adolescents, we 
can you know be a little more direct about it. So we might ask, what is your current gender identity? Some teens feel like a girl or woman on the inside. Some feel like a boy or man on the inside. Some feel like neither both or another gender. What about you? There's no right or wrong answer. Important to note that there can be response bias if there are other people in the room. So these are conversations that are probably hopefully happening in a, in a confidential context where the confidentiality of the conversation is also being communicated to the young person. With regard to sexual orientation, and you know, you all would know better than me where this would actually come up in terms of school life. Certainly in a healthcare context, we would say to pre-adolescence, something along the lines of, have you ever had a crush on someone? Was this crush on a boy, a girl, both, or someone of another gender? For adolescence, we might say, are you physically or emotionally attracted to boys, girls, both, neither, another gender, or are you not sure yet? And again, there can be a response bias depending on who's in the room there as well, and you want to provide reassurance about confidentiality. We want to make sure that we avoid making assumptions about youth with regard to their sexual orientation and gender identity. We can't assume someone's gender identity or sexual orientation based on how they look or how they sound. And we've all been socialized to do that, right? To look at somebody and assume they're a girl, assume they're a boy, and then use pronouns accordingly. And it's not just about pronouns. We have a lot of embedded assumptions in the language we use that are related to sexual orientation and gender identity. And it's a journey we can each go on to uh, reflect on that, be mindful of that, become aware of where we, by default, use gendered language and find alternative language that is not gendered. So for example, instead of saying, how may I help you, young man or young woman, you could say, how may I help you? And not be specific about gender when we don't know how somebody identifies. Instead of saying he or she is here for his or her appointment based on how they look, we could say the patient's here in the waiting room or the student is waiting outdoors, something like that. Instead of saying, do you have a boyfriend or girlfriend? We could say, are you in a relationship? Instead of asking, what are your mother's and father's names? We could say, what is your guardian's or caregiver's name, for example? And this applies to a lot of youth. Some kids have, instead of a mother and father, may have two moms or two dads may have a single mom, a single dad, may have a parent or two who don't identify in a binary way, or may have a legal guardian and not a parent per se. So it, it's really about universal design that's inclusive of all youth and all students and not making any assumptions in the language that we use. It's helpful to try to keep up with terminology. Any use of disrespectful language or slurs is obviously not okay and goes against our values as educators or healthcare professionals. Gossiping about a person, students, um, or colleagues' uh, appearance or behavior in this regard is not acceptable and lowers the level of professionalism within any given setting. And sometimes we'll say things about someone that we think are going to build rapport or alliance with them and we think are complimentary, but are in fact quite off topic based on the context and maybe insulting, saying something like, you look great, you look like a real guy, real girl, maybe what we think a young person wants to hear when they're being affirmed, but um, that may actually not be what they want to hear. It may make them more anxious or more self-conscious and isn't really, there's no reason to, to say that. So if it's not directly related to service we're providing, the education or teaching we're doing, in our case, the healthcare we're providing, better, better to not say it. And we avoid certain obviously outdated terms like the term homosexual, which is a term imposed by the medical community on LGBTQI plus people. It's not how people in English uh, identify in an affirming way. So instead, we want to reflect back the language and the identity labels that the student themselves uses. We no longer use the term transvestite, which was a term that referred to people who were clothing traditionally designed for someone of another gender. It doesn't have to do with gender identity per se. And we don't use the term transgendered, ending in ED, which makes it sound like there was an event that made the person transgender, which is not the case. So instead, we use the term transgender, ending in ER. And it's always an adjective, never a noun. 
your educators too will appreciate this. So we don't say she is a transgender or those transgenders. We say she is a transgender girl or person of transgender experience. So it's always an adjective, never, ever a noun. And we don't use the term sexual preference or lifestyle choice, which make it sound like something kind of frivolous or superficial. Instead, we use the term sexual orientation to indicate that this is a core fundamental part of a person's identity. Putting this into practice, if you're unsure about a person's name or pronouns, a student's name or pronouns, say, I'd like to be respectful. What are your name and pronouns? Many schools now start each class by having people introduce themselves, say their name and pronouns. I know that's the case for Klein High School here in the Boston area and several other uh, school systems. So that's a great practice for all educators to adopt at this point. And I think students are starting to expect that sort of thing as well, to introduce yourself with your name, your pronouns, and then have everybody introduce themselves with their name and their pronouns as well. You can wear name tags. Uh, I, I mean, on our lanyards in the hospital or at the health center, we have our pronouns on them as well. We have this on our email signatures as a default at this point. If a student's name doesn't match their records in some way, you could say, could your records be under a different name? If they're now going by a, a name other than what's indicated on their official government issued documentation or in their uh, records at the school. And again, if you make a mistake, just apologize sincerely and move on. Say, I'm sorry, I didn't be, mean to be disrespectful. If you get flustered and dwell on it, you really make it more about yourself than about them. So you don't want to spend too much time with a kind of overwrought apology where you are trying to assure them that you watch Pose and you know are uh, friendly with transgender people. It's important to create a culture of accountability uh, within the spaces where we work, whether it's a school or hospital or health center. It's okay and in fact important to politely correct colleagues if they make insensitive comments. You could say something like, those kinds of comments are in fact hurtful to others and don't create a respectful work environment, for example. And then certainly you all have the responsibility of, of doing that among students as well and dealing with the, the ongoing major challenges we have around bullying of LGBTQI plus youth within schools. Having all gender restrooms is an important part of creating a safe, inclusive, and affirming school environment. And thinking about forms, procedures, protocols within the school. We do this within healthcare quite a bit, systematically revising, reviewing and revising policies, forms, and protocols to make sure that these are inclusive and affirming of LGBTQI plus youth and their families. This is another one of the best practice briefs on our website about how to revise forms and policies to make them inclusive and affirming instead of mother or father, we could say parent guardian instead of husband or wife, spouse or partners. Instead of marital status, we say relationship status. Instead of family history, blood relatives. Instead of nursing mother, we say currently nursing, since many transmasculine people are delivering babies and chest feeding as well. And instead of having sections marked female only or male only that someone may inadvertently skip over for that reason, we allow folks to choose not applicable. And obviously, there would need to be some adaptation of this to, a, to an educational context. Thinking about workforce development too, whom we're hiring in various positions at schools. Are we recruiting people who are going to be able to be culturally responsive educators and staff members? Are we onboarding people where we're training them to be inclusive and affirming, where we're imparting skills related to sensitive, effective communication? Are we providing professional development opportunities within work settings to promote LGBTQI plus staff so that we have a workforce that fully reflects the diversity of the communities that we serve? Do we have benefits that cover, for example, gender-affirming medical and surgical care? And are we kind of mentoring LGBTQI plus staff to have folks in positions of leadership over time as well? This is a brief we have on our website about recruiting, training, and retaining LGBTQI plus proficient staff. 
It's important for all of us to mitigate the adverse impact our implicit bias can have. All of us have implicit bias against LGBTQI plus people, even those of us who are LGBTQI plus ourselves. This comes from living in a society that is designed based on a number of cis-normative and heteronormative assumptions. We do a lot of work with case-based scenarios to illustrate how implicit bias can adversely impact our communication, our rapport with LGBTQI plus people we serve, and our decision-making as well. And this sort of case scenario-based teaching and working through implicit biases is is very important in in many settings, including educational ones. Finally, how is community being engaged in the life of the uh, system you work with? Do you have advisory boards that include LGBTQI plus people? Are satisfaction surveys being delivered? This is certainly something that's very important in healthcare. Are there peer supports? Is there a system for that? Do you have an LGBTQI plus uh, and allies alliance within the school? Are you uh, connected to PFLAG and following their best practices, parents and families of LGBTQI plus youth? And are you, is the school co-sponsoring LGBTQI plus events like honoring Pride in June, Transgender Day of Remembrance in November. Today, as it happens, is Transgender Visibility Day, and uh, there's Intersex Awareness Day on October 26th, for example. So there are a lot of important events that a school can acknowledge as well. And and celebrate and honor to create an inclusive and affirming environment. Finally, important to help LGBTQI plus youth feel connected to the broader resilience and strength of the community. This is a community with tremendous resilience that's overcome enormous obstacles and achieved greater and greater integration into the mainstream fabric of US society in just a few short decades. If we can help younger people feel connected to those accomplishments and that strength uh, within LGBTQI plus communities, that can be very empowering for them as well. With that, I'll stop. I believe we have about 10 minutes left, and I'd love to have some discussion with you all and hear what questions you may have. Please feel free to reach out to us with any questions as well. Again, resources at lgbtqiahealtheducation.org, and you can email us at education at fenwayhealth.org. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Dr. Kiruglian. And there are some questions, and I invite people to put them in the chat. Hannah asks if we can address uh, coming out and validity of those who haven't or don't want to. Fantastic question. Thank you so much for that. Coming out is a lifelong process. People will do it at different ages. Some kids are coming out now at, in terms of sexual orientation, even at seven, eight years old, you'll have kids who say, I'm gay and are out that way. And um, others will take much longer, may never come out. And you don't just come out once and uh, move on. Coming out is a process you're negotiating throughout your whole life. You may be out to some people you know, not others. Kids may be out at school and not at home, maybe out at home and not at school maybe out to one teacher, to one close friend, to a couple of close friends, all of these permutations will exist. In terms of gender identity, uh, we recommend asking youth as early as four years old. You know, kids will have, as you know, developmentally, three to four years old will have solidification of their gender identity in many cases. So it may be a parent coming to the school with questions about their child's gender identity or expression or a young person may already be very vocal at that age and uh, identify in a way that doesn't align with society's expectations based on the sex they were assigned, want to wear certain clothing, may uh, adopt certain gender roles or socialize in certain ways that may not align with societal expectations based on the sex they were assigned. Many youth who have gender expansive behaviors may go on to be sexual minority cisgender people when they grow up, but many will go on to be transgender and gender diverse. Almost all adolescents who identify as trans or gender diverse continue to identify as trans or gender diverse in adulthood. So it's important to validate and affirm people in their gender identity to not question it. And in terms of youth who don't want to come out, don't feel safe coming out, 
That's the case for many, many youth who, for a variety of reasons, may not feel safe doing so, may have to do with their home life, may have to do with dynamics with other students. And that's totally valid as well. We want to make sure that young people feel safe and are coming out when they are able to do so in a way that feels right for them. So I, I would say to definitely be there, to make uh, room, to listen and support youth whom uh, you know are coming out, struggling to come out, are out, and maybe encountering some uh, challenges within school or at home related to that and to connect them to resources and, and youth support groups as well. Thank you. We have a question. Um, um, thank you for this wonderful info. My question is where to look for information on pronouns for Spanish-speaking youth. As you know, Spanish is a gender-oriented language, so wondering where the latest research on this might be. Absolutely. There is now development of non-binary pronouns in uh, Spanish as well. I'm unfortunately not a Spanish speaker myself, but we have our manager actually for the National LGBTQI plus Health Education Center is a, a native Spanish speaker and recently indicated to me, you know, some conventions that are being adopted in Spanish where, as you point out, um, language is, is very gendered. Uh, so I am happy to I don't know it off the top of my head, but I'm happy to connect you to those resources for non-binary language use in Spanish if you'd like to uh, email me. I'm, I'll definitely do that. Um, two others here. Um, Steph asks, do you have any advice for how to speak with parents slash guardians who may be waiting information about their child's sexual orientation? I have had students come out to me but are struggling to feel ready, safe to come out at home. Great question. I would explore with youth what they anticipate will happen if they come out to their parents, how they think their parents will react, what's the best case scenario, what's the worst case scenario. If it is a scenario that's not great, how they will stay safe in that situation, where they might go if that ends up happening. I wouldn't have that conversation with uh, parents unless the young person asks you to, or you think there's some imminent safety issue where the you know, parent would need to know about it. So I would really protect the child's boundaries with their parents in that regard. In terms of having the conversation with parents, I typically provide them information about the fact that we see that strongly supportive families are the greatest predictor of better mental health outcomes for youth, better academic performance for youth, better socioeconomic status when young people grow up, that there's a very high risk of attempting suicide as well. And depression and substance use among youth who don't have supportive families, communities. And at the end of the day, parents really want healthy, thriving kids. Uh, so it's very important to emphasize that we know that that's the case and that there are a lot of great resources to support them. I would connect parents to, to PFLAG as well. And I know there are chapters in Rhode Island and, and certainly in, in Providence for, for PFLAG, uh, a lot of resources for parents and families to, to know how to support their kids support groups for parents. We run those at Fenway in Boston as well so that they meet other parents who are supportive of their youth and see that you know these are parents just like them who they might be friends with who seem really reasonable and have come around to affirming their child. A couple people noticed the term androgynous that most older folks are accustomed to isn't used as an example referring to gender expression. Can you speak to that? Absolutely, that's a great question. The term androgynous that many of us grew up hearing is not used as much now because it sort of implies that there's something uh, confusing or hard to understand about the person's gender expression. It also implies that it's somehow in between feminine and masculine and we're 
we can't figure it out. So we, the reason communities have moved away from that language is that it's not really about being feminine, masculine, or somewhere in between. People don't, who are non-binary don't necessarily see their gender identities that way. It's also about moving away from this idea that it's somehow confusing or hard to figure out what a non-binary person's gender identity is. They're just non-binary and there's nothing more complicated than that to figure out about it. So it has, it, it is again, part of language evolving. And I'm sure one thing is for sure, language will continue to evolve. In 10 years from now, LGBTQI plus communities are gonna be using language different than what's on the cutting edge today. I can answer some of these about how they can see this afterwards, but um, several people asked about if you would, if it is okay to mail your slides, um, your, your PowerPoint, if you are willing to share that, you can email it to Cindy and she'll get it out to participants. Absolutely. I'll email it right after this webinar and then Cindy can yeah. make sure and, it gets to everybody. Okay, great. And to everyone, this is being recorded, as you know, and um, it will be housed on the RISAS website, www.risas.org. As soon as it's up, you can show it. So a couple of people wanted to show it to their department back at school, um, and that will be available for any people to view um, going forward. And maybe we have time for one more, if there is any transgender fluid support groups for children five to ten someone's asking about that i don't know the answer for rhode island but. we do have groups in massachusetts um fenway runs groups for youth i know uh boston children's does we also have a couple of organizations in the boston area that like bagley uh boston area gay and lesbian um Oh, yeah. Now it's uh, GLBT youth. In Rhode Island, I'm happy to connect with Michelle, who's my closest colleague there who works specifically with uh, LGBTQI plus youth in uh, the area and in the state. There's an excellent health center in um, Providence that we work closely with called Thunder Mist that I'm seeing some nodding from Sarah, so people yeah. have heard of it. Uh, our former medical director for our trans health program at Fenway is now at Thundermist, Tim Cavanaugh, who's wonderful. So I would say Michelle Forcier's group and uh, Thundermist will know of locally what services are available in that regard. We uh, know Dr. Forcier and she is um, amazing. Well, I think that's at the end of the questions and thank you so much. This was Comments Read, uh, and a, a very um, informative and engaging webinar. We really thank you for that and for sharing your, your wisdom and expertise. And we look forward, Dr. Kiroglian will be doing a similar webinar, but specifically targeting parents um, in June. So um, for those of you who've asked questions about parents and how to talk to parents, he's going to be talking to them himself. <laughs> and you can, you can tune into that as well. So thanks everyone for attending and remember to fill out the survey. Thank you everyone. And thank you for the work you do as well. It's uh, tremendously important. So we're very grateful. Thanks for listening. To find more content like this and see the video version of these webinars, please see the links in the description below. If you like this one, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.